I was called in by some rather austere gentlemen from an interesting group of businessmen, shall we say, in, in Naples, who called me into a room at Diego's house and sat me down and said, we just want to say thank you. And I went, okay, you're welcome. What have I done? I said, no, 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 we just want to say thank you. And I said, okay, you're welcome. But anything else? He said, no, 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 thank you and goodbye. And I'm looking and they said, it's over, Mr. John, it, it's over. And they opened the door and I could see Diego down the corridor and he, he, he knew what was going on. And I just thought, okay, listen, the, the locals have taken over. Welcome to the Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. Before Jorge Mendes and Mina Raiola, there was John Smith, often labeled as the original super agent. He's my guest today. By the time he sold the company founded, First Artist, it was making over 100 million pounds a year and had 400 clients. Some of those include Rud Hullet, Gianfranco Zola, the England national team, and most famously, Diego Maradona. We touch on crazy negotiations, mixing American entertainment with English football, his fear of not being relevant, and of course, what it was like to work with Maradona. Here's my conversation with John Smith. John. Welcome to the football studio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. How are you doing today? Uh, well, the sun's shining. Uh, looking out the window, it's it must be twenty degrees today. Um, and obviously, it, the world's in a very strange place, and there's people who are suffering badly. So to say that it's a nice day is probably not appropriate because it's not for a lot of people. But uh, from my world, my my small world at the moment, where I am. Uh, it's okay. It's all right. And we are healthy. And I think us as individuals, at least those of us who are, who are healthy and uh, in a decent place, it's also a pause for us in life and get a, a little bit of an opportunity to, you know, to reflect over what we do and what's important in life as well. Yeah, and I, I completely concur with that. And that's what you do, I guess, when you go away on holiday or over the long Christmas holidays, or Christmas vacations, and you, you kind of ponder and you make all these resolutions in your head, most of which don't exist 15 days later. But um, this time's different because, and I am very much a half full person, very lucky to be fairly successful over the years. So I've, and I've always tried to major on the, the possibility of turning something into a success. But I'm yeah. looking forward now and I'm looking at potential corporate devastation. And that's just not my. That's just not my sports world that I inhabit. But I'm looking at hotels, I'm looking at airlines, I'm looking at retail, um, I'm looking at so many, so many parts of that equation. And I don't know very many companies, small, medium-sized companies, who are going to have more than three to four months cash on their balance sheet. And by the time the furlough scheme evolves here in, in the UK and it's no longer in existence, there's going yeah. to be a demand for cash, which is going to be available because the big funds in America and in Asia and in Europe will have cash, but it's going to be expensive. And it's going, yeah. to, going to come at a price to some people where they will lose their businesses, but not just some, I think a lot. And anybody yeah. who's older than not be ageist here but anyone who's older than 60 who loses their livelihood is not going to be able in this environment to get that back in any great shape before they are an older per i don't consider 60 old because i am but um and, and you know i try to be prudent in my life and try to retain cash at the expense possibly of not achieving some of the things i could have achieved but i wouldn't want to be leveraged now and I wouldn't want not to have cash now. I mean, all of my businesses that I'm involved with, you know, fortunately we've got cash, but I really wouldn't want to be in that position um, where you don't have. Because I think at that point, 
you're looking down a very dark hole. Yeah, and obviously a lot, a lot is going to change. The world is going to be a very different place. Also, in looking at how you know industry will be reshaped, how the football industry potentially will be reshaped. You know, what are what are the new ways that we're going to have to think about the business? And I'm going to try to get to that towards the end. Um, but to start off, I one thing that struck me about you, and I remember when we met at your home. Within the few minutes we spent chatting, we talked about what was going on that day. We talked about what was going on in the UK, in the world. You shared some of your background. You asked about mine. When I told you that I'm Swedish, you went straight into telling me a story about how you brought Freddie Lundberg over to Arsenal. And then you also told me about some of the games that you're having in your backyard with Freddie Lundberg and some of the legends. Um, and you also uh, recommended your book, which is a fantastic book, by the way. That, and, you know, and, and I'm curious, where does that storytelling ability, the curiosity, and the urge to tell those stories, where does that come from? Well, you were a good listener. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and I guess, look, anybody who has a story to tell and is, of, is, a, is a certain type of individual, I guess, because they like talking. I mean, I had this bizarre thing in my life is I couldn't talk till I was 17. So I guess I'm still making up for lost time. But I enjoy talking about stories because I've been very fortunate in as much as I've been in the company of some of the world's most influential and interesting people. Um, my industry has, has had a huge gravitational pull for some of the movers and shakers on this planet. So and I've rubbed shoulders with them and, and I've learned a lot from them. Um, I remember um, doing a, a deal with Roman Abramovich in the early days, um, which I was on the other side. And we weren't doing brilliantly. And there were points that were anxious on my side and, and he, I remember him saying to me, when I've had enough, then I just move on. And I'd always been taught of myself to keep going until you win or till you lose. But it struck a chord with me and I, I just, it sort of stayed with me obviously all these years because I'm, I'm still talking about it, that there are some things in, in life that are really not that important and some things in a deal that aren't that important, but they assume importance because you get emotionally bound up in them. And so I, I enjoy telling stories that are kind of anodyne because I've got a lot of them and I save the pertinent ones for times when I'm either speaking to an audience or, or on television or, or on occasions like this. But I, you know, a lot of what I am is through the, the guys, the good guys, the bad guys, and, the, and the, very rarely have I met a banal person. So I've been very lucky to have met very many enigmatic people. So a lot of me is embodiments of things I've learned over the years. And telling stories is obviously one thing, but telling them efficiently and effectively is another thing. And that's something that you're very good at. Um, what's a, a habit or, or perhaps routine you've had to constantly keep evolving yourself and developing yourself and staying up to date? That's a good question because, you know, I sold out in, uh, in 2011, which is really a long time ago now. And I've strive, I've striven, I've strived, whatever the grammatical. Strived, I believe it is. Strive, strive, I do, yeah. It's like hiatus. What's the capital? What's the capital? What's, what's the plural of hiatus? Is it hiatai or is it hiatuses? Anyway. That's a tough question. question. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I have striven. I like that expression. I'm, I've striven to keep myself relevant. So I've surrounded myself with sizable funds um, so that I can influence financially the markets that I um, that I cohabit. Um, and I've learned a lot from my children, Ross and Scott, who are 30 and 29, but young enough to be part of the new generation, the younger generation. And as such, they've, they've kept me in a place where possibly I might have been outside that arena because it would have passed me by and I wouldn't have recognized it. So I, um, I recognize, though, at, 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 and, and I'm full of energy. I'm 67, and I'm really energized. Um, you look very good. Thank you very much. But, you know, physically, I, I, I run, I do, I bike, I gym, I swim. You know, 
however much my mind thinks my body is still 27, it actually isn't. And so you've got to begin to know your capabilities. And so I'm, I think the one lesson that I've learned is to, to keep yourself relevant, you've got to cherry pick where you are relevant or where you could be relevant, not where you think you could be and should be relevant. And how do you do that? How, how do you cherry pick? Because there's, and, and especially in today's day and age, there is so much out there, so many recommendations. Everybody has got the best formula. Uh, and I think the, the cherry picking is, and, and having that ability is obviously tremendously important. How do you do it? Um, I think I know what my talents are now. And I think I know, I think I know when I'm not as relevant as I was. So, for instance, I'm, I'm a director of a, of a company, I'm actually non-exec chair of a company called Artisan, which is a sports agency. And I'm very used, they've got, you know, sort of young agents and I'm useful in as much as if they're dealing with football clubs or sports franchises or Sport England or any of those places, I'm, I'm known. And if the deals become sticky, that's where I get involved. But I'm not in that front line anymore. I'm not the guy doing the Insta pictures with the client. I'm not, not the guy having that little Josh every weekend. You know, know when to and more importantly, know when not to. That's, that's probably the bigger point of it all. In order to get to know you on a more personal level, how would you describe your background and upbringing? I was very fortunate. Uh, my mum and dad uh, weren't overly wealthy, but they were comfortable. Um, but they did instill in me family values. And, they just, and I had a wonderful, loving early childhood. Sadly, my mum died when I was 15, which was a very harsh lesson. Um, and also, I couldn't talk. I had no ability to speak I had the I had a terrible stammer. I mean, I really I couldn't. I've become John Smith. My my full name's Jonathan, but I just couldn't say. I couldn't get the Athen bit. So people would say, you know, what's your name? And I'd go, and I'd shake my head and and jump around and try and force the words out. And I'd eventually get the John bit out. They'd go, hi John, because they just wanted to shake my hand and get away. So I became John Smith because I couldn't talk, and it kind of stuck, but. My whole world then changed. Mum died. My dad found this um, amazing man about a year and a half later in Jersey called Bill Kerr. And Bill Kerr had a, what he called a miracle speech cure. And I love this. I love that. This is, this is my favorite story, if you, if you don't mind me just going there. for, for a Absolutely. Please. Um, Bill maintained that stammerers were a bit meek and mild not all of them I mean I, I know many people who are speech disfluent who are who are not that but I was I was a bit concerned I didn't want to push myself forward because I I couldn't communicate in those days you didn't have emails and whatsapps and stuff you had to talk so and the telephone was a nightmare for me I just I just couldn't because I, I didn't have telephone conversations um, and Bill said I'm going to I'm going to treat this as a fear that your brain, and an irrational fear that your brain has now taken as its firm place in your psyche. So in other words, you think of a thought in the back brain, you transfer it to the front brain, you want to no, speak, no. and the front brain says, I can't do this. So it shuts down. He said, I'm going to make that, that brain of yours so afraid to not talk, that it'll, it'll be worse than the fear of not being able to communicate. So in other words, mm. the fear I'm going to give you is going to be bigger, that if you don't get this out, you're going to get physically hurt. And unbelievably, he then proceeded to beat me up for two weeks, physically. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure it'd be allowed today, but the principle works. So I'd have to stand in, there were eight of us, by the way, in this class in the Channel Islands in Jersey. And we went to this place in St. Wands Bay and eight of us, it took, it took us the first morning to say hello to each other because none of us could talk. And he made us stand bolt upright and nod your head to every syllable so I be, and, and purse your lips. It was a really unnatural way of communicating. So I, I'd say my name is Jonathan Smith. And if I made a mistake, which I did, I'd get hit, but not just, phew. I'd get punched in the stomach. 
I'd get a karate chop to my neck if he was behind me. I mean, it absolutely hurt a lot. And I remember, because my, my dad was, was with me, and anyone who was younger were, had, their, had to have their parents with them. And all the parents wanted to punch this guy's lights out. But he said, no, 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 you've got to trust me. You know, you've come here. You, you, want, you want to be cured? I'm your only hope because this speaking to metronomes is not... I mean, there are, there are treatments for speech therapy now where you breathe and you breathe and you talk on the out-breath, which are much more um, successful. But in those days, there was nothing. I'm talking 1969, 1970. So remarkably... I was cured in three days. That's incredible. I, the, the, the fear was so, I mean, and we had 12, we had to do seven in the morning till seven at night. And you had 10 minutes for lunch. And then we went back to this guest house where his partner operated. And the same thing happened. I mean, one of the guys there, uh, I remember he couldn't ask whatever the soup was of the day, chicken or something, I don't know. He couldn't say it. And he got a bowl of, boiling up soup poured over his head. I mean, this is brutal, beyond brutal. But not one of us walked away without speaking. I mean, I, I particularly couldn't say P's, D's and T's and things. And I wasn't very good on A's. I wasn't very good on A to Z's, to be honest. But P, D's and T's were my worst. And I remember on the fourth or fifth day, he said, right, you lot can all sod off now. I'm going to have an afternoon off. Go, go into the shops and talk for the first time. And I remember taking my dad and we went to a, um, a fashion shop in St. Helier in Jersey. And, and I ordered a polka dotted tie because I saw one in the window. And, and I, <laughs> I went to the shop, ordered this polka dotted tie, looked at my dad and we both burst out laughing. And the guy just couldn't understand why we were there. But it was the first time I'd talked in 17 years. And, and, and he taught me That's... some wonderful things after that. What to do with speech, how to use it, how to, I mean... Here's, here's one of my best ones. You know when you're in a negotiating tactic or you're with your boss or you're, you know, you're having a one-to-one -one with someone and you really mm -hmm. want to be in control and make them feel it is. First of all, use pauses. Pauses are great because they just focus. Everyone stops and has to look at you. So you absolutely got everyone's attention. But if you're on a one-to-one -one in particular, and I'm looking at the bridge of your nose now, I will never blink. I will never, you can blink. I can look in your eyes all day long. I'll never, ever blink. And it's so disconcerting when you're sitting opposite someone because everybody blinks or they look away or they do something. And once they do that, you know yeah. you've got them and you're still sitting there. And it's a real control of communication. And he taught us stuff like, like that, which is wonderful. Which is remarkable because making a career out of the ability to communicate and having understood and then applying these exact tactics to what you became a master of. And something I want to get back to a little bit later on as well as we go through your journey a little bit, but then once we reflect over it, is also this idea of people who are breaking new ground, who've been in the industry and the situations you've been in requires a great amount of self-esteem. And not having had the ability to speak for so many years, I can imagine has an impact on that self-esteem, yeah. which you've then been able to build up. So let's hold that thought and maybe we can get back to that sure. a little later on. Um, Let's start somewhat from the beginning. There's so much to cover in your journey, and, and we're not going to be able to cover all of it in here. So I want to touch on some of the main things. But take me back to that defining moment in the 80s that got your start in football. I'd been in the record business. Um, I was one of the guys behind Northern Soul, and we published a lot of fairly successful songs. And I, I sold out for the first time in 1981, it was a really bizarre time as well <clears throat> because I was married previously to a wonderful lady called Lee and um, whose picture's behind me somewhere there. And um, she, she sadly got very ill. She, had, she contracted leukemia when she was 29 and she died and it just tore me apart. And a dear friend of mine called Tony, Tony Simons, took over my negotiations. I was, I was selling out at the time. 
And we succeeded in selling, or he put it to a place where I agreed, in the same week that my wife died. So I'd kind of sold out at 28 and done okay and lost my wife all in the same week. So it was just really bizarre. So I then spent... Uh, probably five years. I, I, I actually didn't really want to be here very very much, so I went and sort of hid away in the bottom of a whiskey bottle in Los Angeles for four or five years. And uh, I learned a lot about sport in America. I used to go and watch the LA Raiders, and it was a show. So there were, there were we in the, in, you know, in the dark 80s in, in, in football in the UK, and, it, you know, people peeing on the back of your leg while you stood stood there and throwing bobrel over you and other such delights. And uh, there were they going, having party times. Um, and and I, I came back, but I came back one day and said, you know, I think it's time now that I started again. It was five or six years later. And I'd, I'd heard somewhere, one, one of the evening news bulletins in my home in LA, that uh, Dustin Hoffman and Barbara Streisand had this company called First Artist. And they weren't going to, it made the main event and um, What's Up Doc and one or two major movies. And they'd broken it up. And I love the name. So I managed to get hold of the name and I came back with this idea that I want to do sport and entertainment. And I had a name called First Artist. And I was very friendly with a guy called Paul Mariner, who was then playing for Arsenal, an ex England player. And we budded up. And we started First Artist and we, through long, I won't bore you with the story, but we ended up representing, because he'd just left the England team, the whole of the England football team. So I'd been in business for like 10 days and I had the whole of the England football team as my first client. And so that was pretty decent. And then one other silly thing happened um, about three or four, five months later, maybe even less than that. I phoned up Ozzy Ardiles, who was a Tottenham Hotspur player, an Argentinian superstar, lovely, lovely man. And we met, we talked about wanting to work together. I wanted to work with him. And in the middle of that conversation, the phone went, he grabbed it, talked, whatever, and put down the phone and he said, that was Diego. And I went, Diego who? He said, Diego Maradona. He's fed up with his agent. He's got all sorts of issues. He wants me to represent him. Do you want to help? <laughs> so I'd been in business for three minutes and I had the England football team and probably the biggest superstar in the world. And uh, that was it. We sort of arrived. The platform was set at that point. Those are obviously two decent clients to put you on the stage. Uh, let, let's start with England national team. What was the most defining moment of that period of you working with England national team? Um, there were many, actually. Bobby Robson, the then England manager, allowing me to talk to the team the day before games, uh, pointing out the new sponsors we had. Uh, and we were, don't forget, we were in a bad time in English football at the time. You know, you talk about turning things positive. In the yeah. 80s, in English football, people were dying in stadia. We had the Bradford Fire, we had the Heysel Stadium. You know, it doesn't get much worse than that. So we were trying very hard to to make this a family, so I had this crazy thing from America. I wanted it to be family. Now, we, we had things in those days called family enclosures at football grounds, which said everything wrong to me. You know, it said the rest of this ground's shit, but if you're okay, if you sit in the family enclosure, you'll be safe. So I wanted to break out all that. And we started engaging with companies like Coca-Cola because I knew that they had the heartbeat of US sport and they could potentially translate it over here. There was a wonderful guy called Steve Wright who then came over from uh, Atlanta and took over Coca-Cola Northern Europe. And he and I became soulmates in this. And I got them to sponsor the England team. And then we'd, we'd know where the advertising boards were around the grounds. And I'd be able to tell the team where to go to when they scored. And you, if you look at some of the old 80s footage, you'll see the team score... And they're all kind of hugging each other, but they're looking where to run to. And sometimes it was 30 meters away. They'd have to run down the field and then they'd celebrate in front of the board. And I went back to Coca-Cola and said, you know, how great was that? Look at that. You know, no one else has ever done that before. And they went, well, yeah, it's okay. But, you know, no one saw the board because <laughs> they were all in front of it. So next England game, I'm chatting to the lads and, and 
Paul Gascoigne, I think it was Paul Gascoigne, I'm pretty sure it was Paul Gascoigne, said to me, oh, don't worry, I'll, 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 I've got an idea, I'll throw myself on the floor in front of the boards. And that's what happened. So you'd see the England players score, look, do, run to the board, throw themselves on the, on the, on the ground so you can see the board. So those are kind of seminal fun moments which are harmless. I mean, at the time, people were thinking, that's a bit strange. Why did they do that? But, but nobody ever questioned it, so we got away with it. And it, it was the future of getting major sponsors into, into English football and led, ultimately, to the Premier League. And you, you were involved, obviously, in, in the Premier League as we know it today, which got its start in, in 1992. You brought the entertainment side of it into football and merged the two. What was the key to making that happen? And what were some of the tactics that you applied to start attracting a new audience? So for the first time, we had money. I mean, major money. At the time, the Italians and the, the Spanish in particular were paying huge wages that we couldn't match because we had 40% tax here. And in some countries like Greece and whatever, tax was an optional in your calendar if you fancied paying it that year. So, you know, we couldn't compete at those Southern European levels. But suddenly we could because we had Rupert Murdoch's money. And Rupert Murdoch and his people were very happy having watched me. I, I used to own the London Monarchs and we did all that, all that, that World League stuff. And, and they were quite happy to let me recommend what I think we should do in football. I mean, we, we goofed up a lot as well. You know, we put on Dancing Girls and Fireworks and all the football fans went, what on earth is that? So that didn't work. But other things did. You know, I, I had a good friend at Capital Radio called Richard Park, who's now, I mean, he's had, I think he's head of global radio now. He's a huge, huge player in the radio industry. And Richard and I kicked this around and we said, you know what, Why not, wouldn't it be great to have the Premier League on FM radio rather than AM? Because it gave right. us a whole new audience and they were called women. So now you're listening to music and the women are listening to music and, and the, you've got football on there as well. And they kind of got into it. And so we not doubled the audience, but we'd added this very, very, I was going to say glamorous, it's a bit sexist to say that, but, but it was, it was a glamorous part of our, our equation. So now we had women watching attractive men playing good football to big audiences with great sponsors like Coca-Cola supporting it. And so now we had, a, we had a pyramid and it was actually growing with a firm base. And over the next five to 10 years, it, it just took off. And now to today, I think the audiences, I mean, forget at the moment, obviously, but the audiences, I, the last time I looked, about 1.8 billion every weekend. I mean, that's nearly a quarter of the world's population every weekend. I mean, outside of John Paul, George and Ringo, it's the best export, emotional export we've ever had. And um, Murdoch, obviously, was through the Sky involvement that, right. that came in on the TV rights side of things. He was, um, and he is a complete visionary. You know, it wouldn't have happened without him. Yeah, he's been a power player for a long time. Um, who are some of the international stars you brought to the league? Oh, so many. I think one of the turning points was probably Rude Hullett in, and Zola into Chelsea, Freddie Jungberg into Arsenal. Uh, there was just so many. I, mean, I can't remember them all now, but there were, yeah, there were, there were, there were very many. I mean, I tried to get. Diego in, but that wasn't going to quite work because it was just a bit too expensive at the time. Although Leeds United made an, made an attempt to get him, but that didn't quite work. There were so many. And then there were other good agents like Jonathan Barnett, who's there now still today, who, yeah. who's kind of followed us in and, and, and took, took up the mantle and did really well. So in talking about Diego Maradona, of all the experiences that you've had with him, what's the one that impacted you the most? Being fired, I think. <laughs> what happened? Well, there's a couple of nice ones for. Uh, well, I always liked Diego. I mean, I, I was very privileged to spend some time with him at his home in Italy, and he was definitely two people. There was Diego, and there was Maradona, and Maradona performed, and Diego was lovely. Diego. So when he was on his own or with his close mates, he was lovely. Um, when he was out and doing and being, he was Maradona who had to perform. But he had this, and I, it, maybe God sprinkles some little special dust on people, some people when they're born. Because he could walk in a room and you wouldn't know who he was and he was only five foot and not very much. And people's heads would turn because of, he just had that pizzazz. And, and an immense God-given talent. I mean, it's just some of the stuff he could do and he was strong and he was determined and he was, I still believe, the greatest footballer that's ever 
played football to date on our planet. And uh, I, I, you know, we had some we had some lovely time. I, I brought him over for the for the. I got him by the way. I got him special dispensation to drive his Ferraris through red traffic lights in Naples because he 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 would drive in these little streets and there would be big posters of Jesus on the buildings because it's a very religious part of Italy, and then big posters of Diego the same size on the on buildings next to Jesus. He was that big. And uh, he, every time he stopped at a traffic light, people jumped all over his car and wrecked them. So we had special dispensation given him for driving through red traffic lights. And then I brought him over for the 1987 Football League Centenary do. And I, uh, up here where I live in, in London, there's a, there's a wonderful Italian restaurant, or was actually, so it doesn't exist anymore, uh, run by a fabulous Italian guy called Migueli. And Miguel was a huge fan, a huge, huge fan of Diego Maradona. He was just, he was his complete idol. And he used to give me free, you could never get into this restaurant because it was always really, really busy. You had to book like three or four weeks in advance. But Miguel used to always, I, I find it difficult to accept them, but he always used to offer me free meals because I was working with Diego. And I brought him over for the 87 game and we normally used to go when he was in London we'd go to Tramp afterwards and have a quiet night and a couple of drinks with some with some friends and this time he had uh, his little baby Dalma with him and his wife and um, he, he said you know I fancy in his bad English he didn't speak very good English fancy going to out into the English country so as a, we did the press conference and then about eight o'clock in the evening on a Saturday I phoned Miguel and I said hi it's John um, you've got a table for me for tonight Miguel he went, yeah, it's Saturday. It's difficult, but I'll always squeeze you in. How many? Just two? I said, no, there's 36 of us, actually. And he laughed and he said, that's ridiculous. You know, I can't do this. And I said, one of them's Diego. He went, okay, no problem. <laughs> we, about an hour and a half later, we turned up. Actually, Gary Lineker was with us that, that day um, in, in the party and all, all Diego's family and friends and crew and whatever and people in the restaurant had been pushed into a corner and there was this big table in the middle and Diego came in and Miguel came to meet him and this wonderful moment for me was that he looked at his idol who had this Diego had this wonderful engagement he he put his hands out to give him a hug and I could just see Miguel had a tear coming down his face and I thought moments like that you know you just can't buy that will be with him. Stay with me, obviously, but I'll be with him forever. And so little things like that. And then when it came to the end, um, I was called in by some rather austere gentlemen um, from an interesting group of um, businessmen, shall we say, in in Naples, who called me into a room and uh, it's at Diego's house and sat me down and said, we just want to say thank you. And I went, okay, you're welcome. What have I done? I said, no, 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 we just want to say thank you. I said, okay, you're welcome. But anything else? He said, no, 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 thank you and goodbye. And I'm looking and they said, it's it's over. Mr. John, it's over. And they opened the door and I could see Diego down the corridor and he he, he knew what was going on. And I just thought, okay, listen, the, the locals have taken over. So... That was my moment. Um, I was removed. I didn't see him for years. Um, occasionally we'd bump into each other in, in groups. And then two years ago, I was presenting the FIFA, or helping to present the FIFA awards, and he was invited. And on the green carpet, he came onto the green carpet as the superstar that he was, and I was on the green carpet as well. And we looked at each other, and we great big hugs and so we're still friends, I guess. When that happened and you were out of it, how did that make you feel? Oh, dreadful. Oh, absolutely dreadful. Because I, I, I couldn't figure out what I'd done wrong. I mean, I, I knew why. I knew what was going on. I knew it was, you know, it was a different era. Um, but not only had he become a sort of friend, I guess, but he was a huge calling card for me. You know, it's uh, it's like that agency that has one big client. I mean, fortunately, we had quite a few others, but um, it was just prior to the um, to the Premier League, so all that explosion hadn't happened. So he was still very much um, 
to say that you represent Diego Maradona just opened up all the doors in, in the world. And so I was corporately heartbroken. When it comes to negotiations, which you've been in many, what has been the most rewarding negotiation you've ever been part of? Well, um, I think that there's been a number of of, of landmarks, um, certainly in the... In, in, I mean, I've, I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a, a few tricks and things... Um, over the years, for instance, you know, when the, the more questions you ask, the more information that you get. And in, in the negotiation, if you're stuck, come slightly off subject and ask questions about the person. You've got to know who you're negotiating with, you know, what turns them on? Are they into horse racing? Do they like eating potato crisps? Whatever it might be. You, so if you do your homework right, you can normally find a list of questions in your, what I lovingly call my back brain, to just field out when you're stuck. And the more questions you ask, the more information you get and the more you can turn things around. And if you're stuck on an item, just park it. Either that will do what Roman Abramovich does and leave it. But if you're, if you're stuck and it's important, then you know, park it and work around it. And if they ask you a pertinent question that you, which is relevant that you can't think of because it's a nuts and bolts question it's a you know you've got to know that two and two equal four i always have a briefcase over there somewhere so i can say oh hold me a, hold a second i just need to check something i'm using all that i haven't got to check anything i'm just stuck but i use that time of slowly moving out opening the briefcase making out as if i'm looking at something i'm thinking of all the stuff that i can come back with put the thing away take a file with me because it's useful and sit down and then I can answer the question. I've bought myself in a, in a quite a strong situation uh, when you're banging off each other quickly. I've bought myself time. It's a bit like that pause. So a lot of that doesn't really answer your question particularly. I think um, there's a lot of tricks that I've learned like that. I think some of the football deals that we've done when we couldn't crack a um, Alexander Kleb, for instance, we couldn't crack the, the sum of money that the German agents wanted for the player when he went to Arsenal. Um, so we had a we had quite a big wage, but they wanted a bit more. So we actually managed to agree that every time he came on, he'd get, and it was a big sum of money. Because my gamble was, and the, fortunately my German partners at the time agreed with me, my gamble was that they're not going to buy a, a kind of headline name, and he was at the time, and not play him. So the likelihood is they're going to play him unless he's injured. So we put a big sum of money if he was on the starting lineup. If they came in at half time, he'd get like half that and so on and so on. And that opened up a raft of potential. We didn't realize at the time, but it was the starting point for all the player incentive deals. And you'll see in some of the, some cases now contracts, um, although they're not made public, but you kind of begin to know where they sit. Players get more money for in the starting lineup. Coming on at half time, coming in after you know after sixty minutes is less. Coming on after seventy five minutes is less, or just getting a run out because you've done well in training and here's an extra thirty grand going have a run out for two two minutes. Um, so all of those things, and then you begin to see the managers who've done the deals because you know when they, they they tend to substitute in the sixty fifth minute. <laughs> so so I think things like that make me proud because that that changed the dynamics of the game and allowed lower league clubs to actually access talent that they couldn't do. So in my own world, that was those were sort of seminal moments. You've described as one of the, if not the toughest negotiation you've been involved with. It went all the way to the top in the Russian government. Um, what happened? Which one was that one? Was that with uh, Roman, you mean? Uh, the one with Arshavin. Oh, Arshavin, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a crazy one because it, was, it had been going on for two months. And yet it rolled into the last seconds of a trading window in, in January. Uh, I won't bore you with the whole thing because it's quite a long story, but we were, we were a long way apart. 
until the last week and then the gap closed. And normally when these things close, when they start closing, we were £8 million apart. So when that gap starts closing rapidly, you know that you're beginning to get traction. So you know that there's something potentially positive around now. You just got to think around corners to keep both parties. Because I tend to sit in the middle a lot. So I've got to keep two parties happy. Um, and but by, by this time it had it had gone beyond the management uh, at Zenit St Petersburg because it was actually the club that Putin had had supported as a boy. So he he was I don't know how involved he actually is, but certainly Gazprom, which was the state is the state oil and gas company in Russia. It was the top of their. It was the, the CEO who was negotiating with me. And the previous month, he'd cut the gas supply to the Ukraine. And this month, he's doing a football deal with, with me. And they were very hard. They were very, very hard. They didn't really want to move. And there'd been something in Andre's past with them that just didn't sit. Nothing I, I mean, it was personal, I think. Nothing, nothing wrong. But and it got to the last hour, and bearing that—that that was a—it was a very snowy day. So we'd actually we tried to keep all this secret, and we had done for a while. Um, but we took the call, my brother Phil and myself, with looking at it, and the weather forecast was terrible. It was going to snow. We wouldn't get him in to complete the deal in the medical. So we took the call to fly him in two days early, and we parked him at a hotel called the Village Hotel in North London, and uh, and we said to Andre, "Now just don't." go out the room unless it's dark and we don't want people to see you just be there and you know we, we offered him to stay here but he wanted to have his own space which is fair enough um anyways <laughs> four or five hours later he's outside on his phone walking up and down and people are taking pictures of him so now it's all over everywhere which actually put everyone on a lot more under a lot more stress because it would make us all look really stupid if we brought him over and we had to get permission to bring him over by the way which which for me was an encouraging sign um, but we were still stuck. We were still with, with a day to go. We were still about a million and a half, two million apart. And that gap never really closed until an hour beforehand. Until we said, we'll throw in a million quid because we'd be getting it back on commissions. We, we, we'll throw it in to get the job done, which left half a million for Arsenal to pick up, which they did. And then, God bless them, they actually... Pick it, picked it all up themselves because I think they kind of appreciated that we'd made the effort. But right at the very death, we now have, you know, minutes left and my children are in the other room watching it on, watching Jim White on, on Sky saying the deal's done and I'm sitting here in my office here because we couldn't get out because of the snow and the deal wasn't done. And it wasn't done till at the last minute of the trading window when I managed to get, I had two phones going, one in Russia and one one at the Arsenal offices and we said, no, just, you need to just send, and, and in those days, everything had to be done by fax. And I said, no, no, right. just send an email, say agreed. And that agreed email came in because the Russian fax machine wouldn't speak to the Arsenal one for some reason. So we managed to get this one email agreed, this one word on it, agreed, and it came in with four seconds left of the window. So we were we just, and, and that was a game changer because after that, they set up, FIFA set up the, TMS, the transfer matching system, which worked on email. Morality is is one of those things that comes up very frequently when, when talking about the business of football and in particular when talking about agents and how it's defined obviously can be different dependent on what part of the world you're in and cultural differences come into play. What's say a story that sums that up in a nutshell? That's a really good question. I talk about this in some of my speeches. Um, when you go to Asia, very often there are third-party facilitators of deals. And we tend to take the view here that if I'm doing a deal with you, I'm doing a deal with you. You might have a lawyer, you might have a, an accountant, but I'm dealing with you. In Asia, very often... Um, and it's pretty endemic, in fact. Very often there are third parties that you begin to think, they have no relevance. Why, why are they there? And actually they're probably there because they can be, because he's got a friend or they've got a friend or she's got a friend and they want to make them part of it and they're going to help do something. You'll never really know why. There's sometimes an explanation which stacks up and sometimes the explanation just doesn't. So you just accept it. And we view it. As corruption, 
we view it as slipping more money out the deal or it's, you know, it's money laundering or whatever. But you know what? They've been doing that since before Caesar was a boy. It's just a custom. It's like when you go to the bazaars in Egypt, whatever the price the guy's offering you for your, you know, bag of chocolate or whatever it is, you're going to barter him because that's what they do. So it starts at five and ends up at three and a half after a little mini argument. Everyone shakes hands and gets on with it. It's the same, same thing. So I, I question, what is morality? What is, is it? Are, are, are we right? Are we absolutely right in what we do? There was a big story some years ago that we sold the Saudi Arabians. Or we didn't sell. I mean, I can't remember the story altogether now, but I know the ethos of it. We Either we didn't or we did sell. I think we did sell the Saudi Arabians some fighter MiG jets or whatever. And the French ones are the MiGs, aren't they? Our ones got the deal. And it came out that we paid people. Okay, so, you know, is it right or is it wrong? If we hadn't, the French might have done. Um, I don't see that as morality. I think if you can be transparent about it, that helps. Um, but there are ways and ways of doing business. You know, I've done business in Italy and we somehow those football, big football deals in Italy always go on till midnight. You can start at lunchtime and you're still five to 11, you're still going and you finish at 10 to midnight and they always say, okay, let's go for dinner, which is, <laughs> I just want to go to bed now. And, and on, on one occasion, the, uh, the guy on the other side, we're just concluding, just, we haven't quite done it yet, says to me, okay, what's the time, John? And I looked at my watch and he said, oh, nice watch, I like that. What is it? And you just know, okay, he wants the watch, so seals the deal. Is it morale? Is it, is it morally correct or not? I don't offer an opinion. I just say that's what you have to do. And sometimes you have to do what you have to do. And you can't always say everything walks in a straight line because this world is round. We've touched on some of the good times and some of the successes that you've had, but what's been the most difficult part in your journey? Early doors, not being able to talk and think, thinking that my life was destined to be in the backwater somewhere. And I think also much later in life now, I think looking at having stopped and sold and thought I was this great success, the world's got a lot more expensive since then. And I'd like to think I'll continue to make monies in the way that I want to make money and enjoy it. Um, but keeping myself relevant and keeping the finances in a place where there's enough for me to keep my lifestyle and look after my ch I mean, children, thank God, are doing very well themselves now. But, you know, kind of the hardest thing for me, who on paper, you know, in 13, 12 and a half years time, I'm going to be 80. So what happens if I'm still energized? Am I going to be able to do Am I going to be relevant? Are people going to go, you know what, he's 80. Let's just, you know, let's not bother. Um, so I think keeping myself relevant and able to play in the big league still while I want to be is my heart is the hardest thing for me now, because I still, you know, 67, I've still got potentially 20, 30 years on a journey, probably not 30, but certainly 20 or probably 20. So, you know, and that's, that's a long time. Why is it so important for you to, to feel relevant? Because I'm that person. You asked me this at the beginning. You know, if I, I what makes me tick is I, I need to be relevant. I need to be relevant to myself. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate where I live. I've got a lot of land around here. And I only this morning after breakfast, I'm, I'm walking around it thinking this is lovely. But I couldn't walk around it all day. You know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, feel good. Hear the birds singing. That's lovely. Nice cup of Organo coffee. That's also very nice. Um, then what? And I should be, part of me says I should just be relaxed, go read a book. It's not me. I can't do it. I only read books on airplanes and I don't go on airplanes anymore. <laughs> or at least won't not for a long while. The landscape has evolved and changed quite a bit from when you got your start to some of the heydays of the, of the super agents. If you were to set up an entirely new football entity today, what would that be? I'm looking at what my son Scott does and my son Ross. Ross is one of the guys behind fan televisions. It's a whole new genre, huge audiences. I mean, 30, 40 million people a month tuning into things like Arsenal Fan TV. And I'm looking at what Scott does and he deals with his players on all the various techie platforms that I don't even know how to spell. 
So it's really, it's all about the tomorrow. Well, it's the same. It's actually the same word. It's relevancy. It's about making yourself relevant to your players today. I'm not. I'm a good negotiator and I'm great, I think, to have in your back pocket. So if that mountain is very high and a bit slippery, I might be able to help give you a surer footing here and there because I know what to do and I'm, and I'm not phased by in particular anything at these days. So I think uh, being, again, being relevant and being important to your audience. Know, know your audience and also know your limits. Know what you can do and what you can't, can't do. I mean, I, I ran for Great Britain as a kid. I ran a 9.800 yards. Uh, it was yards in those days. Um, much as I might want to sprint, and I do occasionally now, I ain't doing nine, 900 yards anymore. So I just, you have to know where your limits are and, and know how to manage your body and your mind. And that's at all ages. You're a lot braver in your 20s. I mean, you really think you can fly, and that's fine. Uh, just make sure that you've got secure wings. Once when you were asked, who's the most powerful man in football, you rather surprisingly answered Mark Zuckerberg. Why is that? I, well, I actually thought at the time Zuckerberg had an audience of a billion. After each Premier League game, people would talk about it for about a week in China and India and Australia and wherever. And Zuckerberg's platform was sizable, like a billion voices, a billion voices. And he's taken all this data out of them. And I just thought at the time, there's going to be a point where Sky can't pay anymore. Not at those levels. At the time, Amazon, I don't think, were there or they were maybe thinking about it. Um, and I thought, this is made for Facebook. If they want to write a check out for five billion, four billion, it's, it's a probably a, a day and a half's income. They could own the sport. And I really thought he might want to. Then he didn't. He put his toe in the water in Southeast Asia, which was obviously a place he wanted to do something in. Um, and then he didn't. But now, fast forward to 2020, What's going to happen to football? Uh, I don't know when we're going to be able to fill a stadium again. I don't know when I'm going to want to go on a tube and go to a football ground again, or a theatre, or anywhere for that matter at the moment. Apart from the multiple events and happenings in your career and dealings in the business of football, what are the moments or things that have shaped you from a human standpoint? I wrote this book called The Deal, and it was all about the deals and the footballs and the stories of how the Premier League came to be and how we did them, how we did and how we did and how we did. And, but I have to say that what shaped me as a human being during all that time was the, was the death of my wife, Lee. Um, and the fact that I'd sold my business and become a millionaire before I was 30. And how irrelevant the money was. And that's why I'm not saying million isn't a lot of money, it's a lot of money today, but it was a lot more money in those days. It's completely irrelevant. When you lose your heartbeat, there really is no life in the body. And that's how I felt, which is why I dived into, the, into a bottle of whiskey for so long. But the good thing about life is that life is the essence of your being. And so at a moment in time, your life force says to you, we have to live this. We have to, and I was only 29, 28 at the time. We have to, we have to live this life. So therefore you have to find a place for Lee somewhere where no one else can touch it. That's my private place, like having a private chapel somewhere, if you like, or a private synagogue somewhere. And that's your, that's your private place. That's where you go whenever you want. A bit like your meditation read, you know, with a smile. And I think that for me, I've said it in three sentences, but that only took about four years. 
So for me, those were, that was the most relevant part of my whole journey, that and learning how to speak um, and learning to identify that life force is inevitably the most potent force that you have. And you, can, you can't be everything you dream of. It That's unreal. You know, people say, live your dream. That's, if you, you're lucky if, if you can. But what you can do is you can live and you can dream. Sometimes they scrape holes, sometimes they collide. But very often you create your own dreams. And I think that is the most important lesson. That is a good lesson. And thank you for sharing that very personal story from such a difficult moment in your life. I really appreciate it. I'm just going to shoot a set of uh, rapid-fire questions, and then we'll wrap it at that. Um, favorite team? Arsenal, of course. Cut me, bleed red. If you can't say Messi or Ronaldo, who's the best player in the world right now? If you can't say Messi or Ronaldo... Whoa. I mean, when he was playing and he was on his game, I loved Gareth Bale because he was a goal scorer and he had the speed and he had the energy. And I loved Thierry Henry on his on his day because he can turn a game. You know, I have to say there's some fabulous players in that in the Liverpool team at the moment. And oh, yeah, my my favorite player at the moment is Son at Tottenham. He's only just been recognised, actually. It's only the last two years. But he's the guy, I love his game, I love his attitude. I love the fact that he can be the goal scorer to replace Kane and he can also be the goal supplier to, to supply Kane or who anyone else. I, I love Son at Tottenham, he's, he's, he's my man. What's a recommendation to someone wanting to follow in your footsteps? Have absolute belief but also understand where your limitations are. Know, know when to and when not to. I, we, we said this earlier on in, in this uh, discussion. Um, I made so many mistakes because I didn't think before I barged through that door, I just thought I could. And I think you need to just ponder and know the parameters of, of what you're dealing with at the time. A business leader you look up to and you think people should follow and learn from? I love a guy called Ian Livingston, who runs London and Regional Properties. He's a, I'm a bit biased because he's a friend of mine. Um, him in England and a guy called Todd Rupert in America. Todd was the first trillion dollar fund manager in America. But with humility, he understands businesses like that. He can read balance sheets. He can understand people. He's got humor. Uh, an incredible brain. Ian Livingston is just a really good real estate guy who just knows when to and when not to. I mean, they've, 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 they've become, both of them have become billionaires, but they've done it with humility and they've done it with, with just enormous uh, intelligence. Uh, something that I was not born with. I mean, I'm not talking myself down particularly. I don't have that intelligence. I don't have that. I sit in, I sat in a board meeting once with, with Todd and he saw things in the financial reports that I hadn't spotted and that which, pissed me off a lot because I thought I was clever but he's clever If I gave you a thousand pounds to invest in football where would you place it to maximize my return? Uh, I would say probably Amazon or one of those platforms they are going to dictate I don't know which one it is yet and there are a few out there now I mean you can't go wrong with Amazon I don't think but you know that's the players world is going to change they nothing does this forever so they will plateau at a point clubs are going to go through extraordinarily difficult times um agents are going to suffer because players are, are not going to be quite as well paid whereas the 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 platforms for transmission not necessarily broadcast are the places where I think the real big bucks are going to be made now. That's where I'd go. What's the book that has impacted you the most? Originally, it was Mark McCormack, who for me was the godfather of the sports industry as we now know it. And then I read a book of, from an Irish guy who climbed Everest a couple of years back 
I've read a lot of self improvement books over the years, and I, I, I ran a marathon at the North Pole some years ago, so I got I got into all that stuff about you know pushing yourself to the limits and things. And this guy just wrote a very honest account of his frailties and how he pushed through them, and how within reason you can actually push through most human barriers. Uh, I wish I could remember his his name. Is the Irish guy? He climbed Everest. I think it's the only Irishman who's written a book about climbing Everest. But that's the book to read. And, and Mark McCormack is still relevant, although he he always the, the one thing I, I didn't agree with you. He, he always said, you know, never dress for the occasion. Dress to be anonymous. I don't necessarily agree with that. But everything else, he was the godfather of how sport and entertainment came to be. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? For someone who's tried to keep himself very physically fit, um, the older I've got, the more salutary moments of meditation actually achieve nearly the same mental and physical well-being. So for me and my generation, we grew up with how fast can you run, how how high can you jump, how far can you can you push me. Um, I began to learn probably after the North Pole Marathon, because that was kind of my... Although I did ride my bike with my son, Ross, uh, from from Paris to London, which I I always thought Northern France was really flat, but it's not. Uh, When you fly over it, it looks very flat, but it's not. Uh, Yeah, so yeah, but having climbed those peaks, I thought, you know, I I need to get my head in gear now rather than just because I'm getting older. And finding those moments where I can just sit and just bring... You don't have to do all that and everything else. Just get into yourself. I go into a place which is a a fluffy marshmallow (laughs) with oxygen so I don't suffocate. Because my world inside my marshmallow is soft, it's sweet, it's harmless, uh, and no one can get in um, other than me. And I can sit there for five minutes, that's all it needs, and my soul becomes one again, and I'm, I'm re-energized. That's the gift I would give to anybody. By the way, just before you ask the last one, I was invited in sure. last year to go to North Korea and have a look at their, at some of their um, sporting facilities and, and footballers and see if they would, because, you know, they're looking at what's happening with South Korea, and, and their players are really good. I mean, they don't have the match experience. They don't play very often, you know, on, on a world stage. So um, watch that space. I'm going to try and bring some North Korean players into the Western world in the coming time, if, if that can be done in the next year or so. That would be good. That is fascinating. And, and The North Koreans were an absolute delight and pleasure to work with. They were, and they've been very communicative ever since. So, Well, it goes back to a little bit, you know, the perceptions that we have. We discuss a little bit morality, the, the differences from different, you know, parts of the world. Uh, you know, even though certain countries may have things going on that, that we may not agree with. But, you know, fundamentally, if you travel the world and get to know people. Yeah. People are generally pretty nice and care roughly about the same things that we do. It's the it's the human it's the human soul, but it's actually knowing yourself and giving yourself the ability to to achieve. And one very last short story: Bill Kerr, who I told you at the beginning of this, he also taught me. And when I was doing things like Newsnight with Jeremy Paxton, absolutely f- frightened the life out of me because he. He's much more intelligent than me. He could eat me for breakfast and spit me out and I wouldn't even know I'd been eaten. And I always remember going into the green room toilets before and just getting myself calm and getting myself in control and keeping myself in that position and really getting inside yourself. It's, and it's true. You genuinely can. If you line... I mean, take Usain Bolt out of this for a moment but if you, because he's exceptionally exceptional. If you lined up the top eight athletes, 100-meter sprinters in the world on that line... It's the one guy who absolutely, in rock-solid, sterling belief, believes he's going to win it, that's going to win it. Because that carries you that extra bit from there. That's a good one. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast? Let me have a think a moment. I mean, apart from the obvious, I mean, I, I'm a fan of um, Gianni Infantino, and I don't think his people allow him out enough to do this. He's actually a good guy with a good agenda. I and mean, bearing in mind what's gone before him, it was, 
he's had a very somewhat of a difficult job to play. Um, he and Pete and and um, Richard Scudamore are two really good people at the right at the top of their game. Uh, Richard now is, uh, should be advising everybody at the moment, um, but he's also advising the A League in Australia and the MLS in America. But if you look at the most successful league in the world, without question, it's the, it's the EPL, and it's, that was his vision. Um, so him and Gianni, because Gianni's the future, and Gianni's willing to listen to people like you who have a voice as well. So I think that's important. Fantastic. I'll do my best to reach out to them. I'll give you a couple of connects if you need them. Fantastic. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate this time with you, John. I know you're a busy man, always have been. It's only because this day, I mean, I've got, we've got fairly big monies flowing around transactions at the moment um, and loans into sport and things like that. But yesterday was, you know, we only used to get 20 minutes out sitting in the, in the land round here. Today, I'm, I'm back to back, which is a pleasure, by the way. I've really enjoyed this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Drop a review on iTunes. It will help tremendously in getting awareness. Thanks also for the great response on the first two episodes I published last week with Sven-Jörn Eriksson and Emil Heskey. Thanks again. Enjoy the weekend.